All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Friday afternoon headlines. The $350 million expansion of Morley's Galleria Shopping Centre is set to start this year after Perrin Group confirmed it would go ahead with the first stage of the redevelopment. The property investment group, which owns 50% of Galleria with vicinity centres, has committed to the $150 million first stage of the revamp, which gained development approval in 2019. The first stage involves the refurbishment of the centre's mire, as well as new indoor and outdoor dining and entertainment facilities. The joint venture partners initially gained approval to transform the Morley Shopping Centre in 2016, with a Metro Central Joint Development Assessment Panel approving amendments to it in February 2019. The $350 million project was put on hold that year, with vicinity centres reportedly waiting until the retail market improved to proceed with the expansion. In a recent statement on Perrin Group's website, the company's general manager, Property Investments, Andrew Byers, described the decision to proceed with the revamp as a significant milestone for the group. The Galleria is currently 75,553 square metres, and Business News understands the owners have plans to expand it to close to 180,000 square metres over two stages. Vicinity Centre's general manager of development, Mark Kelly, said the company looked forward to delivering a uniquely curated space. It's understood that Perrin Group is providing $75 million as part of the first stage, with construction to start in the coming months. The second stage of the development is mooted for after 2031. And in mining news, plans for the multi-billion dollar Ridley Magnetite project have been lodged with the Federal Environmental Regulator. Atlas Iron is hoping to build a 3 million tonne per annum magnetite project in the Pilbara to be trucked to Utah Point at Port Hedland for export. Stage 2 of the project will increase production capacity to 16.5 million tonnes per annum. Ridley is one of the major expansion projects for Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting Empire, with Mount Bevan Magnetite and McPhee Creek also on the agenda. The second stage development will include a slurry pipeline and a 28 gigalitre per annum water desalination plant powered by solar energy. Atlas has previously said a final investment decision for the project, near Pardue, is expected by the end of this year. And in more mining news, BHP has delivered record iron ore production for a March quarter, but will cut guidance for Nickel West, blaming bad weather and off-specification product from supplier Mincor Resources. Output from BHP's Western Australian iron ore operations lifted 1% on this time last year, taking it to a nine-month record of 188 million tonnes, the miner reported in a March quarterly update this morning. Cost guidance from WA iron ore remains unchanged, but is likely to come in at the higher end of its target. BHP is also on track to hit 80 million tonnes per annum at its newest mine, South Flank, by the end of 2024. However, the company has been forced to cut guidance from its Nickel West operations from a previous range of between 80,000 tonnes and 90,000 tonnes to between 75,000 tonnes and 85,000 tonnes. BHP said this was due to issues with product supplied by Mincor Resources as well as bad weather. Mincor, which is currently the subject of a takeover by Wailu Metals, told the market in early April that it had delivered the lower quality ore during the ramp-up stage of its flagship. Mincor said it had initiated discussions with BHP to try and amend offtake terms, but that BHP would not agree to it. Production from Nickel West for the March quarter was 19,600 tonnes, contributing to a year-to-date total for FY23 of 58,000 tonnes. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, journalists Matt McKenzie and Jordan Murray discuss why Philip Lowe is courageous and Bill Johnson's move to possibly privatise Gold Corporation. 
celebrate business leaders, entrepreneurs and trailblazers with business news events. With our flagship event series, bespoke online events, webinars, book launches and gala awards programs, our forums showcase the policies and issues affecting Western Australia within industry and government. Our events are your platforms to engage and connect with the Western Australian business community. Visit businessnews.com.au forward slash events for more information. Welcome back to our Close of Business. I'm Jordan Murray. Today joined by Senior Journalist Matt McKenzie as always on Friday afternoons. Matt, how are you today? Excited to be here, Jordan. Are you good as gold? Uh, well, I mean, how good is gold when gold corporation has been under so much pressure? But that's what we're going to be getting into. Specifically when they've been doping it, in fact. Yes, we are going to be talking about gold corporation today because it would seem as if, based on yesterday's announcement from Mines and Petroleum Minister Bill Johnston, that the state government is at the very least entertaining the idea or the prospect of privatising the company that runs the Perth Mint. Now, The minister at yesterday's press conference was at pains to say that was not the direct intention of what they're calling an options analysis, which, if you're not a journalist, is one of those uh, silly little terms that's used uh, to refer to a review. I'll give the minister some credit here, though. He did say that it was just much of a muchness and a synonym for the same thing, so wasn't trying to duck from what was actually happening. One man trying to provide no specific sound bites. That would be a very good uh, assessment of what happened. Uh, Matthew, can I get your take on the Gold Corporation news before we get into the meat of today's discussion on the Reserve Bank? Uh, What was your view of that announcement yesterday? Bill Johnston should be congratulated for taking a mature approach to privatisation. Now, Labor has been a bit inconsistent on this one. People will remember six years ago in the 2017 state election, the Mark McGowan-led Labor Party won in part on a fear campaign about the sale of Western power, and that included, people may remember, flyers with bushfire uh, imagery on it and the term fire sale. Well, then they moved very quickly away from that position because they moved to privatise the Waradage wind farm and some other renewable energy projects. Uh, There was the privatisation of Landgate. They tried to privatise the TAB and then that didn't end up working out. So it's clear that this Labor government has no economic or fairness argument against privatisation because they've been doing quite a few privatisations. Where they have been a bit inconsistent, though, is that they've also been insourcing. And they've been insourcing some work without really making a clear argument as to why. Road contracting, water contracting. And they've even argued to insource ambulances from St John Ambulance, which is a bit odd because it's the only... I believe, non-profit operated ambulance service in the country, and it also happens to be almost the best performing one. So they've made the argument that this is done on economic reasons, those insourcing uh, decisions, but they've never really proved it up. So it's good, it's wise to be thinking about selling off the gold corporation, as Bill Johnston is, because I've long wondered why exactly it is government owned, and no one could ever give me a good reason. Now, just to give you an idea, The Gold Corp has about $150 million of equity. The inventory, which is the amount of stuff that they're holding, uh, that they're going through and processing, is about $6 billion worth, uh, or at least when the annual report was signed off. That is a lot of someone else's gold that the taxpayers are responsible for. 
Now, the evidence shows in general that governments aren't better, or in fact, they're usually much worse at one, at running these sorts of businesses. So Bill Johnston has been accused of kind of ducking the issue or weaving away from the issue or trying to get this asset off the government's hands. But the ultimate question you need to ask is, why does the government need to be operating a gold refinery to begin with? I can kind of accept the argument about the Perth Mint itself as a tourism destination, but what people don't realise is there's a very big refinery out at the airport, produce, re- refining billions of dollars of gold every year. Um, and there's no particular reason, I think, why the taxpayer should be exposed to that industry. I mean, what happens if the gold price falls overnight or whatever? What happens if there's uh, a real serious problem, like, let's say, allegations of gold being doped? Um, let's leave it for private industry to do private industry things, and government should focus its attention on providing services, particularly for the most vulnerable, Jordan. Well, I think that gets into, I guess, there is a moral case at times for retaining certain services and certain businesses, and I guess prisons would be an example of that. But another example might be, say, lotteries or gambling, which we've discussed a little bit in recent weeks on this podcast. I dare say, though, that in the case of Gold Corporation, it may be to do with the politics and the optics of retaining the Perth Mint at the moment, given the investigations that are ongoing. It's worth noting that that investigation that's been conducted by Austrac will proceed the release of the review that will consider options for the ownership of Gold Corporation. Uh, And yesterday the Minister said that uh, any option is on the table, so that will encompass everything from not selling Gold Corporation through to a sale uh, and as well possibly a shared equity model, although he couldn't be drawn yesterday on what that might look like. So interesting subject there that I'm sure Business News will be following closely in the months ahead. Now, moving on to the main subject of today's discussion, Matt, it's monetary policy, which you don't talk about too much on this (laughs) podcast. But I did want to get you in today to have a discussion about the recent review into the Reserve Bank of Australia structure. Uh, It was a pretty extensive review. It was 300 pages long, but you were poring over it yesterday and you have many opinions to share on it. Uh, Let's get your initial views on the review of the Reserve Bank of Australia. The first thing I want to say is that Philip Lowe is the hero we need but not the hero we deserve. And a lot of people might think, why is he saying that? Because interest rates have gone up so much. Well, Dr. Lowe has shown great courage. He made a mistake. So did Scott Morrison. So did Josh Frydenberg. So is Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese, who also don't have a plan to fix inflation. But at least Philip Lowe is taking action to fix it. Find me a politician who would wear the pain and the embarrassment and the attacks like he has to try to do the right thing. And the fact is this, the only way to stop the pain of inflation is to stop the stimulus. And that means more normal interest rates. So Philip Lowe has been um, vilified, I guess, in a lot of press over the past year, but uh, I think he really deserves respect because You've got two options here. Either you continue to let inflation get out of control, and that is extremely painful for most people in society, particularly those who are most vulnerable, or you take action now to fix the problem. And, you know, even in the RBA review yesterday, they said that the Reserve Bank was delayed in its response on inflation compared to other central banks, but it acted decisively once it did act. It's worth noting, though, the US Fed, which was less delayed, the Bank of New Zealand, the Bank of England... Um, they've all increased interest rates, I believe, more than the Reserve Bank has. So the Reserve Bank's targeted a soft landing. They've been reasonably, uh, you wouldn't say they've been soft in their approach, but they've been softer than other central banks have. Uh, And so Philip Lowe, obviously, it's been painful for him personally dealing with all of this, but at least he's doing 
what is in the long-term interests of everyday Australians, Jordan, and where politicians probably would not. And I guess that gets to one of the central recommendations of this review, which is the splitting of governance and monetary policy decisions into two separate boards. And I do wonder uh, whether or not it is effective to mirror the structure of the Bank of Canada in having a separate board make monetary policy decisions, given what you've just said there. Some of the interest rate rises over there have been much steeper uh, and much more rapid than in Australia. Uh, But getting into some of those major changes that were recommended in the review, Matt, what was your opinion on some of those? What was your take on some of those? Do you think they're significant? I think this was a light touch review and everyone has acted like it was a huge deal. Uh, But I think it was a huge relief, honestly, for anyone with a sound economic mind. Number one, the bank stays independent. Good. Number two, the inflation target stays and it stays at two to three percent good. If they'd changed those things, I would have been in in here today absolutely raging. But they didn't. And the review did say that inflation targeting or the inflation targeting era has contributed to uh, economic success compared to previous decades. And we know that over the past 30 years, inflation has been under control. There's been a lot less volatility in the economy. Of course, you know, there was a pandemic, but that is a different factor. In general, there's been a lot less volatility in in the economy while the Reserve Bank's been focused on inflation. Now, some people wanted to increase the inflation target further. Some people, and we'll talk in a moment, wanted to introduce other objectives. uh, And we're going to explain a bit later on why it doesn't always work that way. Um, But why did we have an inflation problem? It's not really about the board or who's on the board or who's not on the board because, as you've said, it's happened in other countries as well. It's because in public debate, the way we've thought about inflation has been warped over the past few years. Even in Treasury, some people probably in the Reserve Bank too, and perhaps there started to become a view in society that inflation would never be a problem again and don't worry about it. Um, And that was where the problem was. And, uh, you know, that has been a problem uh, in... A lot of commercial banks too, a lot of them underestimated how much we'd need to increase interest rates as, a, as in Australia. Um, so it's not just an RBA problem. What is changing is, yep, there'll be a monetary policy board which will assess monetary policy based more so on uh, what you, the vibe you get is that it'll be based more so on academics. I think that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's not a big deal. I don't think it matters that much either way, to be honest with you. More frequent meetings down from 11 to 8. One of the things I read yesterday which I found odd was that Everyday Australians would welcome the review because there'd be less frequent meetings, which means fewer rate rises or something. And I went, well, can't they? They'll just increase by more at each meeting. I mean, the Fed meets less often. They were going in 75 basis point hits. So that argument. <laughs> if you hated Philip Lowe before, you're going to hate him. <laughs> you're going to be even more upset. Um, and it's important to say that Philip Lowe welcomed all of these. He said he actually said that he thought for a long time that these governance changes should be made. And I don't know if that was reflected fully across the media, but he did make the point that if people think that changing the the makeup of the board or having a specific board focused on monetary policy and a specific board focused on government governance, if people think that's going to make a huge difference to inflation, um, it won't. Uh, ultimately, um, the most important thing is this. It's not actually about, you know, whether there's a monetary policy board or a governance board. What is important, and it's not important whether they're academics or whether they're in business, what's important is whether they are hawks or doves. Hawks being people that want to fight inflation and focus on fighting inflation and have tighter monetary policy. Doves being people that want to try and stimulate the economy consistently and have lower interest rates. That's the one thing that really matters. And for that, it's Jim Chalmers who is responsible for who he appoints. And the two people he appointed yesterday, Alana Rubin and Ian Ross, I understand both, well, one of them, a former ACTU Assistant Secretary in Mr Ross, uh, Alana Rubin, 
worked at Slater and Gordon and is a former ACTU official, according to the AFR. So that should tell you something. The union movement wanted representation on the board and, oh boy, have they got it uh, big time. Uh, and it will remain to be seen whether Mr Ross and Ms Rubin are going to be fighting inflation and tough on inflation or whether they're going to be trying to pursue other goals, which, as we'll get to shortly, you can't actually really achieve through monetary policy. Jordan? Seems like they won't have too much of a say on monetary policy, though, when there's that separate monetary policy When that board. happens, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about governance issues. I thought there were some interesting points there, and I think uh, far more infrequent meetings is interesting. I think the reasoning given there was that it would give the economists more time to think about their decisions. I think that's fair recommendation. I think there was a lot more around communication in this... Uh, review than there was about the internal workings and a lot more about the community having confidence and decisions and I know it sounds pretty insignificant but the idea that the governor will have to front the press after meetings to explain decisions and work through with journalists why certain decisions were made uh, will be good for the Reserve Bank and it might head off some of the criticisms that we've seen of Philip Lowe recently. I think that's a pretty good recommendation. There's a few others there that I thought were really important to note. Uh, I believe there was a recommendation around removing the ability for the government to override decisions made by the Reserve Bank, uh, which obviously was a recommendation or a suggestion that was made uh, earlier in the piece by Green Senator Nick McKim, which I think a lot of people looked askant at when it was mentioned at the time. But one that I thought was worth mentioning was uh, Recommendation 7, which is to do with climate risks. And I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what was argued was that the central bank, the Reserve Bank, I should say, should take it into consideration, but it shouldn't drive monetary policy decisions. Was I correct in analysing it that way, Matthew? Yeah, basically, that's right. Which I think is very important to note, because if we look at the US right now, Joe Biden has issued one of his first vetoes of an attempt by Congress to disallow ESG views uh, for retirement fund managers contributing to investment decisions they make. Now, I don't have to be too descriptive in why that is. There's obviously certain forces within uh, the US Congress which have an anti-woke agenda and they feel that they need to target these things. But can I just say that accepting climate risk isn't woke. It's just good economic management at times. And I think by having this recommendation in there, we're heading off a very stupid debate before it happens because this is about ultimately acknowledging that risks like how changing weather patterns may affect investment decisions or how our economy works is important. It's not about lowering the cash rate to encourage investment in wind farms. This is about saying that our world is changing and it may affect the business landscape and the economic landscape broadly. So I'm glad that that distinction has been made and there's been a little bit of nuance introduced there. And hopefully we won't see such a silly debate happen here in Australia, man. Well, I think the review was right to make it not a central objective. And yep, fair enough, it should be considered as, you know, with everything. Uh, it should definitely be considered in making decisions, but action shouldn't be an objective of the Reserve Bank. And here is why. Let me let people in on a little secret. The RBA, any reserve bank, can only achieve one thing at a time. And in the long term, it can only impact one what is called nominal variable at a time. So the RBA can impact unemployment in the short term, but in the long term, it can't. That's the agreed position of the vast majority of economists. Um, what it can impact is a nominal variable. So either the exchange rate or inflation, which is the growth in prices, or you could theoretically target nominal GDP or whatever else you like. Um, so that's not real variables because the real things in the economy, what you call real GDP growth, real wages, all the rest of it, that's driven by productivity, how many workers you have, how educated they are, how healthy they are, how many hours they work. Um, 
how much equipment you have to support them. If they're working on a farm, are they using um, those scythes or whatever to cut grain or are they using combine harvesters or whatever? Those are the type of things that impact the economy's growth over the long term. Um, and the Reserve Bank can only, over the long term, impact things like the inflation rate. And it can only do one thing at a time. Why is that? Well, because you might set one exchange rate on one particular day but in it, and, and it might be it might work with a particular inflation rate, but as things change in the economy, which is very dynamic, the next year that inflation rate and that exchange rate won't fit together. And then the year after that, it might become even more different and so on and so forth. So if you try to pick multiple variables, they're not always going to line up at the same level forever. That's what it's all about. So that's why reserve banks moved in the 90s towards targeting inflation, because it's the one thing they actually can do in the long term. And as part of this review, they've uh, cleaned up the reserve bank's objectives. They've taken out the general point about wealth and prosperity, and they've said that's an overarching aim. Uh, they've said it's about inflation flexibly 2 to 3% and uh, keeping un unemployment under control. And that's fair enough. But we, we know that um, the Reserve Bank can only take temporary action on unemployment. And here is something that came up yesterday which is key and really worth noting. Philip Lowe was asked, what do you guys estimate is the full employment level of unemployment? He said 4.5%. So what does that mean? That means regardless of any action by the Reserve Bank, regardless of increases to interest rates or otherwise, over the medium term, the Reserve Bank expects unemployment to rise back to that level. From its record lows now of 48-year uh, lows at, I think it's 3.5% at the moment, back to 4.5%. And that's assuming they've got the full employment estimate right. They might have it wrong. Uh, it might be higher than that. We don't know. What does that all mean? Well, if the full employment rate is 4.5%, that means any unemployment level below that is by definition temporary and by definition will lead to higher inflation. And people might go, oh, gee, wow, isn't that amazing? So unemployment was at record lows, it was below that level, and we've had an inflation outbreak. Is that a coincidence? And I would say, no, it isn't a coincidence. That's what happens when you excessively stimulate the economy like Josh Frydenberg has done and Jim Chalmers continues to do. So uh, that will be an important number for people to consider. And it's an important thing to know that the economy is going to be returning to that level over time regardless of what happens with interest rates. So why do we increase interest rates? Because unlike unemployment, inflation, if you start to get expectations set that it's going to be a particularly high level, will continue to run at that particularly high level unless you take some action to stop it. And so that is why the Reserve Bank has been so focused on fighting inflation, Jordan, and rightly so. And we will see with the new appointments and the new board and the changes whether they continue to be focused on fighting inflation or whether they go off and pursue some other quixotic battles that they cannot win, George. Just then as you were speaking, I was thinking of when Josh Frydenberg used to change the number that we assumed Nauru to be. Yes. Uh, several points. Multiple through. times. Almost seemed politically convenient at times, but then I guess <laughs> many people uh, may have changed their views on what Nauru might have been. And why was he never held accountable for that mistake and for increasing inflation when Philip Lowe is the guy that's getting slammed all the time? Think about it. I think voters of Kuyong may have held him accountable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just getting, though, into, I guess, the broader impact of these changes, Matt, do you think this will significantly change the way monetary policy is done here in Australia? No, I hope not. Um, and I think that's the whole thing going into this is actually, to be honest with you, we don't need major changes in how monetary policy is done. We need it to be focused on inflation, 2 to 3% target ban, willing to act when there's a financial stability issue, willing to act to soften the blow if there's a recession or other issue. 
willing to take action to reduce unemployment, but ultimately people need to have the maturity to realise that the Reserve Bank is not capable of fighting climate change or whatever else. The government can do that. You and I can do that. Um, but the Reserve Bank can't do that through interest rates. Um, what they can do is get inflation under control. And hopefully that is what they continue to try to do, Jordan. In the meantime, you can head online now to businessnews.com.au. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.